good to see you back on Sunday night. And uh, let's pick up in uh, Joshua chapter 24. Take your Bibles there. I want to finish up our study in the book of Joshua uh, with Joshua 24 this evening. And our message is Joshua's final message. It was his final word to Israel as he approached the end of life. In this chapter, Joshua is going to have some things to say to Israel as he uh, is about to pass off the scene of history. His life, if we were to try to summarize it very quickly, had been one of impeccable faith. Joshua, of the same thread, if you will, as, uh, as Moses, trusted God. God blessed Joshua in the same ways that he blessed Moses as God had parted the Red Sea for them to cross over from Egypt. So God opened up the Jordan River and let them pass over on dry ground. Many of the same demonstrations of power God had given into Joshua's life, same as he did for Moses. And not only was Joshua's faith impeccable, his obedience was without question. Never did we see in his leadership of Israel that Joshua ever questioned God or balked at God's command. I mean, even Moses at the burning bush said, God, you got the wrong fella. Uh, I'm not your man. Uh, I can't speak. And he made excuses. Joshua never did that. Joshua always moved forward and, and did what God asked him to do. Yet, as I was reading this chapter and putting my thoughts together this week, one of the things that st stuck out to me right at the beginning was uh, the fact that Joshua was just a man, he was mortal, and though God had used him in, in magnificent ways, and uh, it was through his leadership as a general that they conquered the land in the south first and in the north, and we didn't read all the chapters that were tedious of him delegating the land and, and giving it to each tribe and then possessing the land, but Joshua had basically completely led them to conquer the land of Canaan under God's leadership and under God's power and gave out the land. And so now at this point, the tribes are in their land and they're at peace and they, they have the possession that God gave them. And yet now it's time for Joshua to die. And I was thinking about that. No matter how great a man or woman might be in this life and no matter how marvelously God might use them and might do great things, they have an appointment with death. They're mortal. And as the writer to the Hebrews said, it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. So Joshua, being like every other human being, at 110 years of age, it came time for him to leave here. And this was part of the preparation for that. Now I wrote down two things about Joshua's preparation to die. And I would suggest to you, unless a person is prepared to die, they're not really prepared to live. They're not really prepared to live in this life unless you're prepared to die because uh, it's 100 out of 100 die, okay? I mean, it's, it's everybody goes. Joshua was prepared to die in two ways that are, that are the most important. Number one, he was a saved man. Joshua was saved by faith just like we are. Joshua was saved by faith the same way Abraham's faith in God was counted to him for righteousness. So Joshua believed God and it's counted to him for righteousness. Joshua was a saved man. He was forgiven of his sin and, and, and he knew God. He had a relationship with God. And Joshua was prepared to die because he knew where he was going when he died. Yeah. 
He knew the eternal destiny of his soul. And so Joshua was at peace with facing death. I believe, and I've, I've stood by the bedside of saints of God as they left this world. I've watched them die. I've stood there while they take their last breath. And there's a dying peace and a dying grace that comes to the saint of God when it's time to go. And Joshua fits that, fits that category. He was a saved man. And I can only say tonight, for those who are watching online and here, if you're not prepared to die, you need to deal with that tonight. If you're not comfortable with the fact of where your soul's going when you leave here, you need to get saved tonight. You need to talk to somebody before you leave here. Number two, the second reason I believe Joshua was ready to die, primarily because he was a saved man and he had that, that relationship with God, but secondly, he had served well. Joshua had served well. When we get a little older, sometimes we look back in life and we have regrets. Now, God tells us, don't look back. He says, look forward. Paul said, I don't look back, I look forward. But even the apostle Paul said, man, I'm the least that should be saved because he had persecuted the church. And I believe that still bothered Paul that he had done that. We, when we come to the end of this life, really need to be at a place where we can say to ourselves and to God, Lord, I've done my best. Lord, I've given my best. I've given my all. I've worked hard not perfectly, not without failures, but Lord, maybe in the pattern of Joshua, I've served well and I've done what you asked me to do when you called me. Joshua had peace in leaving this life because he had served well. You see, there's something we should all want to hear as children of God. It should be the desire of our heart to stand before Jesus one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear him say, and that's what you should want to hear him say. So we should be prepared to leave this life as Joshua was because we're saved, because our faith is in Jesus Christ and we've trusted him, and because we have uh, served God and we've given ourselves to serve him. May we be as prepared as Joshua was to leave this life. Now his final message begins in verse 1 there. It begins to give us the, the circumstances of his final message as he speaks to Israel. He knows his, his days are, are numbered. It's coming toward the end of his life. Notice how it begins in verse 1 of Joshua 24. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Now, it's interesting that he would call them the Shechem and not one of the other notable places that we've read about through the book of Joshua. I think there's a, a couple of reasons that he called them the Shechem, and scholars have different opinions about it, but I'll share a couple of thoughts with you about it. Number one, Shechem is the first place Abraham went when he came into the land. That's the place where Abraham went and God made the promises to him and said, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make a nation out of you. What better place for Joshua to call the leaders of Israel and to call them together really for a recommitment to the Lord, a rededication to the Lord. So he calls them to Shechem, to that place where the promises were made. The little church where I got saved in, and I was thinking about it this week when I was writing that, and <clears throat> thinking about him calling them to Shechem, you know what's good for us to remember? It's good for us to go back to those places where God's made a big impact on our lives, notably where we were saved, and think about it. The little church where I was saved is up in Ridgewood. If you know where that is, you go up landing, and uh, 
You go down that road, I forgot the name of it, where they built a school back in there. You go down there, there's a little tiny church down there on a dirt road. It's a Free Will Baptist church. And I was in one of those little bitty rooms back there when I was 11 years old and a lady shared the gospel with me and I prayed to receive Christ. I still remember the room and where I was sitting. Little tiny church. I can remember going to church there and there were 20 of us in there. But that's where I met Jesus. And sometimes if I'm going by that way, I will drive down that road and I'll pull in that dirt parking lot and I'll just sit there and think about when I got saved. Joshua called him to Shechem to say, hey, this is where it all started happening. This is where Abraham came. This is where God made the promises. And this is what you need to remember. It was also the place in Shechem, if you remember in our study through this book, where they had one conquered half the, half the country, the, the south. And you remember what Joshua did. He brought them to Shechem and he wrote the law of God on a bunch of stones and he put them there. He wrote the law of God out on flat stones and he put them there. He calls them back to Shechem and he says, hey, you remember what I wrote on there? You remember read this thing to you? And he draws their attention back to the word of God. He draws their attention back to the law of God. Why? Because it's that law that needs to rule their life as they move forward without him. And though he's about to die, he knows the word of God is forever. And the word of God extends to every generation. And so he says to them, this is a solemn convocation. This is a solemn assembly. And here's the word of God. And I want to I wanna call you back to serve God. And then thirdly, I was thinking, and I know I say that a lot that I was thinking, but when you read God's word, you get to thinking, don't you? You get to pondering things. And then I thought about the value of meeting like that. The value of the fact that, you know, Joshua could have just said, well, you know, I'm 110, I'm retired, and I'm just going to ride off into the sunset with Jesus, and I'm just going to go on to heaven, and I hope they do well. You know, he could have said that. You know, I hope they, I hope they, I hope everything works out for them. You know, God used me to get them here. They're in their, in their tribe areas, and I hope they really stay close to God. But that wasn't enough for him. He calls a meeting. He calls them together because he wants to remind them and remember, the Jews were, were, for history, were celebrating feasts and, and special occasions in their life and worshiping and going over the law. And so he calls them together for, again, this solemn gathering, this convocation, this important thing to hear the word of God because he's going he's gonna to give them a message from God. God's going to speak through him to speak to them as he's about to leave the scene and the leadership is going to change. Maybe that's why the writer to the Hebrews said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, what do you think? Maybe that's why the writer to the Hebrews said, hey, you Christians of every generation, you need to be together. You need to meet a solemn convocation, if you will. You need to come together and consider the Word of God and circle around the Word of God and let that thing be the anchor and the foundation of your life now, in this message that Joshua is going to give them, and we'll read it in just a moment, he's really going to do three things in this message. And I didn't, write, I didn't want to explain it this way, but I will give you this to think about since you're the Sunday night crowd, the A students. Let me just, let me, let me tell you. There was in that day this, these Caesarean contracts that kings would make with, with people that were under them, okay? Nations that they had captured. And the way these things went 
was the king or the, or the victor would lay out the conditions of the relationship. And it would say, okay, you're going to serve me and I'm going to take care of you. You'll be part of the kingdom, but here are your requirements. And they would lay them out for them. It's almost what God did. It's the same kind of pattern that Joshua was going to use to say, look, God has given you the land. God did all this for you and you serve him. And here are the conditions of you serving him. And what he's doing is he's reminding them of their responsibility to serve God. He's reminding them, this is your responsibility. And he does it in, in three ways. Number one, he reminds them of what God's done for them. And let's think about that for a moment. He says, look, I want you to recount in your mind exactly what God's done to get you here. I mean, you're living here because God did miraculous things for you. God did marvelous things for you. His grace and his power demonstrated in your life are sometimes beyond description. And I was thinking, that's exactly what God's done for us as Christians. Think about where you are today and where you could have been. Think about what God's done in your life, where he brought you from to be here today. Think about your spiritual journey that Jesus broke into your life and, and God the Holy Spirit called you to be saved. You could have been lost and on your way to hell. But God saved you and he's grown you and he's taught you. And you are where you are spiritually today by the grace of God. And so Joshua says to them, you need to remember where you came from. Last time I checked, you were slaves in Egypt and God did a marvelous thing and brought you out and he brought here and gave you this land. So you should remember where you came from. Then he challenged them. He said, I want you to live holy before God. I want you to obey his law. I want you to keep your part of the covenant. I want you to make right choices. All of my children are, are older now. Haley's the youngest. She's 17. You can't, you can't hardly sit on a 17-year-old and tell them they can't go anywhere or do anything. You can, but they don't like it much, and they get squirmy, and, and you know they want to do things. So when I was studying this, I thought, man, that sounds real familiar to what I tell my kids. I tell them, hey, remember, remember who you represent, not just your mom and I, but you represent God. Remember when you go out there, whose, whose responsibility you are before, you are before God, who sees all things. And I always say to them, make right choices, make good choices. Don't, don't do dumb stuff. You know, don't do things that are going to cost you and I, and I encourage them. Joshua's doing the same thing here. He's challenging them to be what God called them to be. The application's easy. We do that in church, don't we? We come together, and, and Solomon said, iron sharpens iron. We encourage one another. And, and after I've been here and been under the Holy Spirit and been here worshiping, I'm not as likely to do dumb stuff as I might be if I never come to church and, and have the fellowship, okay? I mean, we need one another to do that, okay? And then thirdly, he, he reminds them, he challenges them, and then he warns them. What do you think Joshua is going to warn them about? What you saw God do to all these people? Don't, don't get in that boat, okay? Because God will do that to you. And he warns them. He warns them of, of God's holiness and he warns them of God's judgment and his justice and his wrath. And he says, don't do that. So now let's begin with the reminding part, which he begins in verses two to four. He's going to remind them about what's happened in the past. Look at it. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So mark that it's God's message that he's speaking to them. It isn't his message. He's speaking 
God's word to them. Same as we do today. When we teach a class or we share with somebody, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen, if you share your message with somebody, it don't do them any good. You got to share God's message with them. So he says here, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now listen, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Naor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times and they served other gods. God said, then I took... Let me, let me challenge you to do something as you read down through this chapter. Everywhere you see God say, I did it, or I took, or I delivered, mark it. There's about 38 of them, if I count it right. God said, I did it. And, and Joshua, through Joshua, God's reminded them how they got there. Okay? Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountain of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. You know what Joshua was doing here? He's saying, remember, you had a sovereign beginning. Remember, you had a divine beginning. Remember, your beginning as a people wasn't because of you. Wasn't because of anything you did. He's saying, God began you. God went down and called Abraham. And you know what? God called a man who was lost. Abraham was lost. Abraham and his daddy and all of them were lost. They were all worshiping idols. And so what God's saying is, look, I sovereignly called a man who was lost and called him to be saved. And he believed me and he was saved. And I began the nation with a man who I saved. Everything God's done in the church for the last 2,000 years, he's done it with a bunch of lost people that he saved. And he's still doing that. So God said, hey, don't, don't, don't forget where you came from. Your whole background isn't one to brag about. You're, you're the, the one who began the nation came from a bunch of idolaters who, who didn't know me. And God said, I broke into their life and I saved them. Here's something we need to remember always. In the salvation event, God always makes the first move. God always comes after us first, not us looking for God. Now, our part is to respond to God. And our part is to respond in faith. And we have to make that choice, don't we? When God convicts a man or woman about their sin and God convicts a lost person that they need to be saved, then they have to respond and they have to willingly say to God, you're right and I'm wrong and I want to be saved. And they have to believe by faith. I believe there are people in this church every Sunday morning they come under the hearing of God's word that need to be saved, but they're not. Now later, praise God, they'll come ask questions or they'll come see me or they'll see Bill or they'll talk to somebody and they'll pray to receive Christ. And sometimes a week or two later or a month later, somebody will call or email or they'll come by and say, hey, I was at church one day and you said I could pray to receive Jesus in my seat and I confessed my sin and asked Jesus to save me and I got saved. And God moved them and they want to come tell somebody and we get them in the baptism pool. In fact, we got three baptisms next Sunday night before we do our missions thing. So God's in the same business he was with Abraham. God's calling people when he's moving on their hearts. And praise God he makes the first move. Because if God didn't make the first move, we'd all be doomed. Because in our blindness and our sin, we wouldn't know where to look in the first place. But God said, I called Abraham. Uh, and then God said, and by the way, not only did I call Abraham, but all the descendants after him, and we talked about Isaac this morning, Isaac and Jacob and Esau, God said, I did that. And Esau in the mountain, I did that. And Jacob and his family ends up in Egypt, I did that. Why did God get Jacob and his family in Egypt? Because God put them in an incubator, put them down there in Goshen so they could grow, 
put them down there so they would be safe uh, from destruction in the world. And, and they grew and turned into a couple million people before God delivered them. And God reminds them through Joshua, I did that. You didn't do that. I did all that for you. Now, what's the purpose in that? Why would God remind them of that? Because when God reminds us of what he did for us and what only he can do for us, it should cause us to reverence him. It should cause us to be even more motivated to serve him. Do you think sometimes about what God's done in your life and didn't just cause you to be thankful and grateful and want to be obedient? I don't know about you. I fail God often and I hate it because when I think about how good, how good God is to me and how he's blessed my life, I don't ever want to disappoint him. But in my flesh, I'm like everybody else. I guess I just have to stop driving on Blandon and then I'll probably do a whole lot better. But, you know, you don't want to fail God. You don't want to fail God. You want to, I have people say sometimes, Pastor, how do I know I'm saved? Do you have a conviction about sin? That's a simple question. Do you have a conviction about sin? If you have a conviction about sin, that's the Holy Spirit. If you have no conviction about sin, then you need to examine yourself and see where you are. It really is that simple. So, God said, I did that. I, I drew them, and, and you're here now. He moves in verses 5 to 7 to talk about their deliverance from Egypt. Look at it. God said, also who? I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued, God said, Egypt, according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. God said, hey, that whole thing down there in Egypt you heard about? God said, I did that. Because remember, this is a whole new generation now. And God said, I did that. I did that. I brought them out. The plagues, the water turned to blood, the frogs, the lice, the fleas, the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death of the firstborn. God said, I did all that. I did that. I bent the heart of a man who wouldn't bow to need, Pharaoh. The man who hardened his heart, he said, I told Moses one more plague and he's going to let you go. Not only is he going to let you go, he's going to throw you out. God said, I did that. I, I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you across the Red Sea. And think about all the years they wandered in the wilderness when they wouldn't go on land. Forty years. The Bible says their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. Man, I can't get a pair of tennis shoes to last more than ten months. How do they wear their clothes for, you know, forty years? God said, I did that. They couldn't find food. And God said, I rained down food on them. Manna from heaven. They wanted meat. I gave them quail. God said, I did that. God's reminding them of who took care of them and who brought them to where they are. And I say again, look back in your life. God did that. God's done that. And he deserves to be honored for it. And then God said, I gave you the land. Look at verse, 20, at verse 8 in chapter 24. He says, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he counted, uh, continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. 
Verse 11, then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwelled in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Let me just walk back through, because we didn't talk about it in this book, what God did on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side, particularly with Balak, king of Moab. God had delivered Sahan and Og and those Amorites into the hands of Israel, and God had destroyed them, and the Moabites were afraid. And Balak, the king of Moab, came up with an idea. He said, I'm going to hire some spiritual help. I'm going to hire a prophet to curse Israel because maybe if he'll curse them, then maybe we can defeat them because we're afraid of them and we can't beat them. And so he hired a prophet named Balaam. Remember that guy? We'll have to preach some messages on Balaam one day. He's a false prophet. He's a prophet for hire. He's did his trade to make money. Funny thing is he had conversations with God and was still lost. That's an amazing thing. So Balak sends messengers to Balaam and said, hey, I got these people that came out of Egypt, and man, they're a royal pain. They're killing everybody. I need you to come curse them so we can beat them in battle. And he sent these messengers, and Balaam, the prophet, said to them, you can read it in Numbers 22, by the way. Go home and read it. I'll tell you a real short version of it. So get this, Balaam the, the prophet says to the messengers from Balak, you guys wait here while I pray and ask God what I'm supposed to do. And so Balaam goes in and asks God, and God speaks to him. God said to him, he was a prophet, and God said, under no circumstances are you to curse Israel. They're my people. I brought them out, and don't you mess with them. That's paraphrasing. So Balaam goes back to the messengers and said, hey, sorry, God said I'm not allowed to curse them, and so can't help you today, man. Find another, you know, can't help you because God said I can't. So the messengers go back and tell Balak, the king said, Balaam's not coming. He said he's not doing it. So the short of it is Balak sends them back to Balaam the second time with a blank check, essentially what it was. And he said, I need you to come curse these people, fill in the numbers. And so here's where Balaam messed up. Now, Balaam already knew God said, don't go, right? Could that be any clearer? God said, don't go. Balaam said, wait here and let me ask God again. Why? You think God's changed his mind since yesterday or the day before? So Balaam goes in to God and asks him again. And funny thing, God said, you, you can go with them, but you're not going to be able to curse them. Now, here's, here's some theological stuff to think about. Why would God tell him he can't go and then tell him go? It was a test. Remember, we talked about that this morning. God already said don't go, so what should Balaam have done? Under no circumstances am I going with you guys. A team of horses couldn't get me to go with you because God said don't go. Matter of fact, Balaam even said, Balaam can give me a house full of silver. He can pay me whatever he wants to pay me, but God has already said he's not going to let me curse them, so it's a waste of money. But you know what? You know what Balaam did anyway? He went. 
I can't help it. We'll take the time. You know, you remember the story? He's riding his donkey. And he's going, right? And the angel of the Lord shows up with a sword. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, but Balaam don't. You're in pretty bad spiritual condition when the donkey's more spiritual than you are, right? So the angel of the Lord's there, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and Balaam's happy-go-lucky, going to ride right into this angel and die because the angel's got this sword. And I know that because later the angel of the Lord said, if your donkey hadn't stopped, I'd have killed you and spared him. Well, then there's some encouragement, isn't it? So the donkey turns aside and goes somewhere else, and Balaam starts beating the daylights out of his donkey because the donkey won't go where he's supposed to go. And finally, the angel of the Lord traps him between two walls, and the donkey goes against the wall and finally lays down, and Balaam is wailing on his donkey with his switch, with his stick, and God allows the donkey to talk. You got to really feel good about yourself when a donkey is about to rebuke you, right? And the donkey looks at this prophet and says, why are you beating me? What's even more amazing about this story is Balaam enters into a conversation with him without even being shocked that his donkey's talking to him. I mean, it's amazing. And the donkey said, why are you beating me? And Balaam goes, because you won't get up and go where I tell you. And then God opened the eyes of Balaam and he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with a sword. And that's when the angel of the Lord said, hey, I'll kill you and leave the donkey alive. It's a good thing for you. The donkey saw me and spared your life. Here's the point. Balaam, the way of Balaam spoken of in the New Testament by Peter is to be in the ministry for hire, to teach a, to teach a, a doctrine that appeals to people who want their, their ears itched and they want it scratched and they want to hear what they want to hear and you do it for money and you do it for popularity. That's the business Balaam was in. And God rebuked him and ended up costing him his life. And what God's saying through Joshua here is, hey, I was taking care of you when you didn't even know I was taking care of you. This prophet's supposed to come and curse you and I won't let him curse you. Here's a little side note for you. I really believe with all my heart when we get to heaven and God pulls back the curtain and we see all the events in our life and we see all the times that God protected us, when we didn't know we were being protected, we're going to be pretty amazed. We're going to be pretty amazed when God pulls back the curtain and we go, wow, man, God, I didn't even know I was in danger. And God's going to go, I know, I'm just looking over you, just taking care of you because you're my child, just watching out for you. So Balaam, God said, I, I took care of you when Balaam came and the kings came. And by the way, you won't, let me, I can't help it. You know, you know the other thing Balaam did? Balaam's a really good thing to study. Balaam could not curse Israel. So you know what he said to Balak? This is part of the way of Balaam as well. Compromise with the world. Balaam had this, had a right view of God that God's holy. And if you sin against God, he's going to judge you. But he missed the whole part about God's grace and using people that he saved. And so Balaam said, hey, Balak, here's what you do. God's not going to let me curse them. But if you cause them to sin, if you cause them to break covenant with God, God will judge them and destroy them for you. So what they do, they send a bunch of Moabite women into the camp and cause a bunch of the men to 
to sin with them. And God killed 24,000 Hebrews for the sin. And, and the priest's son went in and with a javelin and stuck two of them to the ground and stopped the curse. Listen, God said, the way of Balaam is all of that. And so God's saying to Joshua here, hey, I brought you through that. And I, and I took care of you even though you did that. And then he said, of course, Jericho, which we've read about, uh, that first important city that they had to take, God calls the walls fall down and they went in there. And then God lists all the different people groups that were living there in Canaan that God led them in victory over and over and over and over. And then he makes an important statement here. And he said, and before you, I sent the hornet. You see that? Now there are some scholars who think that's a metaphor. They think it's a metaphor of God going before them. I don't think it's a metaphor. I think they're hornets. You know why I think that? Because the hailstones God dropped on their head were real too. Right? Remember the battle? Right? Joshua's going to go battle and God sends a hailstorm and, and the Bible says the hailstorm killed more soldiers than Joshua did with his sword and his, and, his, and his spears. You know, it would be really difficult to fight a battle with hornets stinging you. Be really hard to fight. I went in the yard one day. You know those, those things that dig in the ground, them hornets that are coming out of the ground? They're the worst, aren't they? I mean, they're the worst. I've been stung by bees and stuff before. Eh, you know, little, little alcohol, and you're all right. Those yellow jacket things that come out of the ground, that's like getting hit with a hammer. Them, them bad boys are tough. I kill them every way I can kill them when I find them. The point is, if God sent hornets into the enemy camp, God discombobulated them before Joshua and them ever got there. And I think God did that. And so God reminds them to Joshua, look, all these victories you enjoyed and all this land that you took, God said, I was ahead of you. And sending hornets and, and, and hailstones. And God said, I did that for you. Remember? How many times did God say, I did that? All throughout here. And then finally, verse 13 is my favorite in this list. Look at it again. God said, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them, you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Of all the cities they took and taken Canaan, they burned two cities. They burned two. What did they do with the rest of them? They're living in them. They moved into cities. They didn't have to build the walls. They didn't have to dig the, the wells. They didn't, they didn't have to do anything. Matter of fact, when they won the battles and God gave them the battle, all the crops are still growing in the field. They just go out there and harvest them and start bringing them in. That's exactly what God's saying to them. Man, I moved you into a land. I moved the other ones out. They all died. And I moved you in. And I did exactly what I said I would do for you. I gave you everything. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. And I gave it to you. If we just stop right there, you would say, man, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, but man, I'm serving God, right? I mean, you would be inspired that God did all that for them. With every good sermon and message, there has to be application, right? Well, Joshua does that in verses 14 and 15. Let's finish with these two verses. Look at verse 14. You see the phrase, now therefore? After all that, Joshua says, now therefore... Here's what you need to do. And he spells it out for him. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, 
Put away the gods which your fathers have served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And verse 15 is really the, the, the capstone. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that's underlined in my Bible. Let me tell you what he said to him real quick. We have five minutes. Ten if I stretch it. Listen to this. Number one, he said, because God did all that for you, everything he just said and everything God said, I did that, I did that for you. He said, first of all and foremost, fear God. Fear the Lord. Now let me tell you what fear the Lord means. It means a reverence him for his power and his dignity. It means to give him his due respect as God. It means to honor him with gratitude for his goodness. It means to look back on what God's done in our life and say, God, I can never repay you. Thank you for what you've done for me. God, I can never give back to you what you've given me. Lord, you saved my soul. I can spend eternity with you instead of the hell that I deserve. That's reverence in God. And then fear also has the idea of, of dreading the thought of offending him. That it, that it hurts us to think, God, I've failed you. Or I've done something that offends your holiness. Now, thankfully, in Jesus, that's only the way the Father sees us is in his Son. But when I sin, the Holy Spirit knows it, and he lets me know about it. So we dread failing God. And it also means to fear his displeasure. Now, thankfully, if you're saved, the displeasure of God is a loving Father who chastens us. And for the lost, the lost man or woman should fear God's displeasure because of the last one. To fear God means to really understand his judgment and how terrible it is. And so that's what all it means to fear God. And so he says to them, given what God's done, you should fear him in all of those ways. You should respect him. And then he said, serve him with sincerity and in truth. Serve him in sincerity and truth. What does that mean? I would sum that up in our word, integrity. Serve God with integrity. In other words, don't be duplicitous. Don't, don't say, I'm going to serve God and then try to serve the world at the same time. David said in Psalm 51.6, God, you desire truth on the inward parts. You know what that means? God said, I look at the heart and I want you to be genuine. Don't say that you love me and don't say that you're going to serve me and on the inside you're in love with the world. Don't say you're going to love me and you're going to serve me and you're trying to hold hands with the world and you got hidden sin and you got things in secret in the closet that you won't, that you won't deal with. God said, don't do that. And Joshua said to them, that group of people, don't do that. Serve God with integrity, purity, sincerity of heart. And then he says something that's almost shocking, doesn't he? And put away the idols. Boy, what does that mean? It means they're already infected. That's what it means. And I think the thing he just said about integrity points to that because they're hiding it in their house. They're serving God, but they got the little idols in their house too. And they pull them out and put them up on the mantle. And they're, and they're trying to serve two gods at the same time. What did Jesus say about that? No man can serve, what? Two masters. Jesus said that. He's either going to love the one and hate the other, or he's going to love the one and he's going to hate the other. You can't serve both of them. What does that mean to us today? Do we have idols today? More than they had. More than they had. 
You say, Pastor, I don't have any idols on my fireplace mantle. No, but they're all over life, aren't they? Cars, houses, finances, jobs, professions. What's an idol? Anything we put ahead of God. Anything we worship or we give ourselves to other than God. Don't have idols, he said. Put them away. And then finally, the last two things I want to show you. He said, today you choose. Man, that's powerful. He said, today you choose. Verse 15. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself. You know what he's saying there? Be man enough to make your choice. Don't act like you're going to serve God and then serve everything else. He said, just make a choice. Man, I've said that to Christians before, and I know they think I'm trying to be ugly, but I'm not. And I would say to us as a church, be man or woman enough to make your choice. Are you going to serve Jesus or not? Yes or no? Are you going to be committed to Christ, or are you going to be committed to the world? Because you can't do both. Listen to me, you cannot do both. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We can't be of the world and be of Jesus at the same time. It's impossible. So Joshua said to them, hey, be man enough to pick what you're going to do and get on with it. Either say I'm going to serve God and put away all the idols or follow the idols that your fathers followed. One or the other, but don't try to do both. And then he, he slew them with this. He said, but as for me and my house, if you want to know where I stand, you want an example of what you ought to do, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Now you read the rest of the chapter when you go home. He was quite the motivational speaker because they all said, man, we're with you. We're serving God. But if you read a little further down, you know what Joshua said? I don't believe you. He said it in that words, but he said, he said on down the way, he said, well, yeah, it's easy for you to be all rah-rah, but do you really want to serve God? You know how I know they weren't real? Because after Joshua died and the generation that he was with died, guess what they did? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You only do that when you really aren't following God. Let me close with this. He preached the message to them from God, and he called them, he called them to serve God. Can we do any less today? We, listen to me, we in the New Testament, under the grace of God, have far more than they ever dreamed of having in a relationship with God. I mean far more. Can we do less than what Joshua called them to do? And the answer is no. If you're here tonight, you've never been saved, would you accept Christ now? Would you confess your sin? Say, God, I'm a sinner. I know it. I ask Jesus to forgive me, save me. Come out of my heart, save me, Lord. Make me different on the inside. God will honor the prayer. He'll save you if you'll ask him. Think about that tonight. Do what you need to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of Joshua and for the message that was preached. God, that you preached through him to those people of that day. God, that message resonates with us today, Lord. It is what we need to hear. God, we need to choose to follow you, Lord, or not follow you. And Lord, I pray that our hearts are fastened on you and fixed on serving you. God, if there's somebody here tonight who's not saved, someone who will hear this message at some point, Lord, I pray for them that, God, they'll confess their sin and ask you to save them. Bless the invitation time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you or you need Christ, you want to join the church, be baptized, you come on the first verse.